0: This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett CHAPTER three The Pantechnican one how do you do miss earp said denry in a worldly manner which he had acquired for himself by taking the most effective features of the manners of several prominent citizens and piecing them together so that as a whole they formed denry's manner oh how do you do mr machin said ruth earp who had opened her door to him at the corner of tudor passage and st luke's square it was an afternoon in july Denry wore a new summer suit, whose pattern indicated not only present prosperity, but the firm belief that prosperity would continue. As for Ruth, that plain but piquant girl was in one of her simpler costumes—blue linen, no jewellery. Her hair was in its usual calculated disorder. Its outer fleeces held the light. She was now at least twenty-five and her gaze disconcertingly combined extreme maturity with extreme candour. At one moment a man would be saying to himself, "'This woman knows more of the secrets of human nature than I can ever know.' And the next he would be saying to himself, "'What a simple little thing she is! The career of nearly every man is marked at the sharp corners with such women.' Speaking generally, Ruth Earp's demeanour was hard and challenging, It was evident that she could not be subject to the common weaknesses of her sex. Denry was glad. A youth of quick intelligence, he had perceived all the dangers of the mission upon which he was engaged, and had planned his precautions. "'May I come in a minute?' he asked, in a purely business tone. There was no hint in that tone of the fact that once she had accorded him a supper-dance. "'Please do,' said Ruth an agreeable flouncing swish of linen skirts, as she turned to precede him down the passage. But he ignored it, that is to say, he easily steeled himself against it. She led him to the large room which served as her dancing academy, the bare boarded place in which, a year and a half before, she had taught his clumsy limbs the principles of grace and rhythm. She occupied the back part of a building of which the front part was an empty shop. The shop had been tenanted by her father, one of whose frequent bankruptcies had happened there, after which his stock of the latest novelties in inexpensive furniture had been seized by rapacious creditors, and Mr. Earp had migrated to Birmingham, where he was courting the official receiver anew. Ruth had remained solitary and unprotected, with a considerable amount of household goods which had been her mother's. Like all professional bankrupts, Mr. Earp had invariably had belongings which, as he could prove to his creditors, did not belong to him. Public opinion had justified Ruth in her enterprise of staying in Bursley on her own responsibility and renting part of the building in order not to lose her connection as a dancing mistress. Public opinion said that there would have been no sense in her going dangling after her wastrel of a father— quite a long time since we saw anything of each other,' observed Ruth, in rather a pleasant style, as she sat down and as he sat down. It was. The intimate ecstasy of the supper-dance had never been repeated. Denry's exceeding industry in carving out his career, and his desire to graduate as an accomplished clubman, had prevented him from giving to his heart that attention which it deserved, having regard to his tender years.' "'Yes, it is, isn't it?' said Denry. Then there was a pause, and they both glanced vaguely about the inhospitable and very wooden room. Now was the moment for Denry to carry out his pre-arranged plan, in all its savage simplicity. He did so. "'I've called about the rent, Miss Earp,' he said, and by an effort looked her in the eyes. "'The rent?' exclaimed Ruth as though she had never in all her life heard of such a thing as rent, as though June 24th, recently passed, was an ordinary day, like any other day. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'What rent?' asked Ruth, as though for aught she guessed it might have been the rent of Buckingham Palace that he'd called about. "'Yours,' said Denry. "'Mine?' she murmured. "'But what has my rent got to do with you?' she demanded. "'and it was just as if she had said, "'But what has my rent got to do with you, little boy?' "'Well,' he said, "'I suppose you know I'm a rent-collector?' "'No, I didn't,' she said. "'He thought she was fibbing out of sheer naughtiness. "'But she was not. "'She did not know that he collected rents. "'She knew that he was a card, a figure, a celebrity, and that was all. "'It is strange how the knowledge of even the cleverest woman "'will confine itself to certain fields.' "'Yes,' he said, always in a cold commercial tone, "'I collect rents.' "'I should have thought you'd have preferred postage stamps,' she said, gazing out of the window at a kiln that was blackening all the sky. "'If he could have invented something clever and cutting in response to this, Sally, he might have made the mistake of quitting his role of hard, unsentimental man of business. But he could think of nothing. So he proceeded sternly. Mr. Herbert Calvert has put all his property into my hands, and he has given me strict instructions that no rent is to be allowed to remain in arrear. No answer from Ruth. Mr. Calvert was a little fellow of fifty, who had made money in the mysterious calling of a commission agent. By reputation he was really very much harder than Denry could even pretend to be. And indeed Denry had been considerably startled by the advent of such a client. "'Surely if any man in Bursley were capable of unmercifully collecting rents on his own account, Herbert Calvert must be that man.' "'Let me see,' said Denry further, pulling a book from his pocket and peering into it. "'You owe five-quarters rent thirty pounds.' He knew without the book precisely what Ruth owed. But the book kept him in countenance, supplied him with needed moral support. Ruth Earp, without the least warning, exploded into a long peal of gay laughter. Her laugh was far prettier than her face. She laughed well. She might, with advantage to Bursley, have given lessons in laughing as well as in dancing, for Bursley laughs without grace. Her laughter was a proof that she had not a care in the world, and that the world for her was naught but a source of light amusement. Denry smiled guardedly. "'Of course, with me, it's purely a matter of business,' said he. "'So that's what Mr. Herbert Calvert has done,' she exclaimed, amid the embers for her mirth. "'I wondered what he would do.' "'I presume you know all about Mr. Herbert Calvert,' she added. "'No,' said Denry, "'I don't know anything about him, "'except that he owns some property, and I'm in charge of it. "'Stay!' he corrected himself. "'I think I do remember crossing his name off your programme once.' "'And he said to himself, "'That's one for her. "'If she likes to be so desperately funny about postage stamps, "'I don't see why I shouldn't have my turn.' The recollection that it was precisely Herbert Calvert, whom he had supplanted in the supper-dance at the Countess of Chell's historic ball, somehow increased his confidence in his ability to manage the interview with brilliance. Ruth's voice grew severe and chilly. It seemed incredible that she had just been laughing. "'I will tell you about Mr. Herbert Calvert,' she enunciated her words with slow, stern clearness. "'Mr. Herbert Calvert took advantage of his visits here for his rent to pay his attentions to me. At one time he was so far, well, gone, that he would scarcely take his rent.' "'Really?' murmured Denry, genuinely staggered by this symptom of the distance to which Mr. Herbert Calvert was once gone. "'Yes,' said Ruth, still sternly and inimically. "'Naturally a woman can't make up her mind about these things all of a sudden,' she continued. "'Naturally,' she repeated. "'Of course,' Denry agreed, perceiving that his experience of life and deep knowledge of human nature were being appealed to. And when I did decide definitely, Mr. Herbert Calvert did not behave like a gentleman. He forgot what was due to himself and to me. I won't describe to you the scene he made. I'm simply telling you this, so that you may know. To cut a long story short, he behaved in a very vulgar way. And a woman doesn't forget these things, Mr. Machin. Her eyes threatened him. I decided to punish Mr. Herbert Calvert. "'I thought if he wouldn't take his rent before, well, let him wait for it now. "'I might have given him notice to leave, but I didn't. "'I didn't see why I should let myself be upset, "'because Mr. Herbert Calvert had forgotten that he was a gentleman. "'I said let him wait for his rent, "'and I promised myself that I would just see what he would dare to do. "'I don't quite follow your argument,' Denry put in. "'Perhaps you don't,' she silenced him. "'I didn't expect you would—you and Mr. Herbert Calvert. "'So he didn't dare do anything himself, and he's paying you to do his dirty work for him.' "'Very well, very well,' she lifted her head defiantly. "'What will happen if I don't pay the rent?' "'I shall have to let things take their course,' said Denry, with a genial smile. "'All right, then.' "'Ruther responded. "'If you choose to mix yourself up with people like Mr. Herbert Calvert, "'you must take the consequences. "'It's all the same to me, after all.' "'Then it isn't convenient for you to pay anything on account,' said Denry, more and more affable. "'Convenient?' she cried. "'It's perfectly convenient. "'Only I don't care to. "'I won't pay a penny until I'm forced. "'Let Mr. Herbert Calvert do his worst, and then I'll pay. "'And not before.' "'and the whole town shall hear about Mr. Herbert Calvert.' "'I see,' he laughed easily. "'Convenient,' she reiterated contemptuously. "'I think everybody in Bursley knows how my clientele gets larger and larger every year. "'Convenient.' "'So that's final, Miss Earp?' "'Perfectly,' said Miss Earp. He rose. "'Then the simplest thing will be for me to send round a bailiff tomorrow morning early.' He might have been saying, the simplest thing will be for me to send round a bunch of orchids. Another man would have felt emotion and probably expressed it, but not Denry the rent-collector and manager of estates, large and small. There were several different men in Denry, but he had the great gift of not mixing up two different Denrys when he found himself in a complicated situation. Ruth Earp rose also. She dropped her eyelids and looked at him from under them. And then she gradually smiled. "'I just thought I'd see what you'd do,' she said, in a low, confidential voice, from which all trace of hostility had suddenly departed. "'You're a strange creature,' she went on, curiously, as though fascinated by the problems presented by his individuality. "'Of course I shan't let it go as far as that. I only thought I'd see what you'd say. I'll write you to-night.' "'With a cheque. Denry demanded, with suave, jolly courtesy, I don't collect postage stamps. And to himself, she's got her stamps back. She hesitated. Stay, she said. I told you what will be better. Can you call tomorrow afternoon? The bank will be closed now. Yes, he said, I can call. What time? Oh, she answered, any time. If you come in about four, I'll give you a cup of tea into the bargain. Though no, you don't deserve it. After an instant she added, reassuringly, "'Of course I know business is business with you, but I'm glad I've told you the real truth about your precious Mr. Herbert Calvert, all the same.' And as he walked slowly home, Denry pondered upon the singular, erratic, incalculable strangeness of woman, and of the possibly magic effect of his own personality on women. 2. It was the next afternoon, in July— Henry wore his new summer suit, but with a necktie of higher rank than the previous days. As for Ruth, that plain but piquant girl was in one of her more elaborate and foamier costumes. The wonder was that such a costume could survive even for an hour the smuts that lend continual interest and excitement to the atmosphere of Bursley. It was a white muslin, spotted with spots of opaque white, and founded on something pink. Denry imagined that he had seen parts of it before, at the ball, and he had, but it was now a tea-gown, with long languishing sleeves, the waves of it broke at her shoulders, sending lacy surf high up the precipices of Ruth's neck. Denry did not know that it was a tea-gown, but he knew that it had had a most peculiar and agreeable effect on himself, and that she had promised him tea. He was glad that he had paid her the homage of his best necktie. Although the month was July, Ruth wore a kind of shawl over the tea-gown. It was not a shawl, Denry noted. It was merely about two yards of very thin muslin. He puzzled himself as to its purpose. It could not be for warmth, for it would not have helped to melt an icicle. Could it be meant to fulfil the same function as muslin in a confectioner's shop? She was pale. Her voice was weak and had an imploring quality. She led him not into the inhospitable wooden academy, but into a very small room, which, like herself, was dressed in muslin and bows of ribbon. Photographs of amiable men and women decorated the pinkish-green walls. The mantelpiece was concealed in drapery, as though it had been a sin. A writing-desk, as green as a leaf, stood carelessly in one corner. On the desk, "'a vase containing some Cape Gooseberries, "'in the middle of the room a small table, "'on the table a spirit-lamp in full blast, "'and on the lamp a kettle, practising scales. "'A tray occupied the remainder of the table. "'There were two easy chairs. "'Ruth sank delicately into one, "'and Denry took the other with precautions. "'He was nervous. "'Nothing equals muslin for imparting nervousness to the naive. "'But he felt pleased.' "'Not much of the widow Hullin's touch about this,' he reflected privately. "'And he wished that all rent-collecting might be done with such ease, "'and amid such surroundings as this particular piece of rent-collecting. "'He saw what a fine thing it was to be a free man, under orders from nobody. "'Not many men in Bursley were in a position to accept invitations to four o'clock tea at a day's notice. "'Further, five per cent on thirty pounds was thirty shillings.' so that if he stayed an hour, and he meant to stay an hour, he would, while enjoying himself, be earning money steadily at the rate of sixpence a minute. It was the ideal of a business career. When the kettle, having finished its scales, burst into song with an accompaniment of castanets and vapour, and Ruth's sleeves rose and fell as she made the tea, Denry acknowledged frankly to himself that it was this sort of thing— and not the Broom Street sort of thing that he was really born for. He acknowledged to himself humbly that this sort of thing was life, and that hitherto he had had no adequate idea of what life was. For with all his ability as a card and a rising man, with all his assiduous frequenting of the sports club, he had not penetrated into the upper domestic strata of Bursley society, he had never been invited to any house where, as he put it, he would have to mind his P's and Q's. He still remained the kind of man whom you familiarly chat with in the street and club, and no more. His mother's fame as a flannel-washer was against him, Broom Street was against him, and chiefly his poverty was against him. True, he had gorgeously given a house away to an aged widow, True, he succeeded in transmitting to his acquaintances a vague idea that he was doing well and waxing financially from strength to strength, but the idea was too vague, too much in the air, and save by a suit of clothes he never gave ocular proof that he had money to waste. He could not. It was impossible for him to compete with even the more modest of the bloods and the blades. To keep a satisfactory straight crease down the middle of each leg of his trousers was all he could accomplish with the money regularly at his disposal. The town was waiting for him to do something decisive in the matter of what it called the stuff. Thus Earp was the first to introduce him to the higher intimate civilizations, the refinements lurking behind the foul walls of Bursley. "'Sugar?' she questioned, her head on one side, her arm uplifted, her sleeve drooping— and a bit of sugar caught like a white mouse between the claws of the tongs. Nobody before had ever said sugar to him like that. His mother never said sugar to him. His mother was aware that he liked three pieces, but she would not give him more than two. Sugar, in that slightly weak, imploring voice, seemed to be charged with a significance at once tremendous and elusive. "'Yes, please.' "'Another?' and the another was even more delicious. He said to himself, I suppose this is what they call flirting. When a chronicler speaks the exact truth, there is always a danger that he will not be believed. Yet in spite of the risk, it must be said plainly that at this point Henry actually thought of marriage. An absurd and childish thought, preposterously rash, but it came into his mind and what is more, it stuck there. He pictured marriage as a perpetual afternoon tea, alone with an elegant woman, amid an environment of ribboned muslin, and the picture appealed to him very strongly. And Ruth appeared to him in a new light. It was perhaps the change in her voice that did it. She appeared to him at once as a creature very feminine and enchanting, and as a creature who could earn her own living in a manner that was both original and ladylike. A woman such as Ruth would be a delight without being a drag. And, truly, was she not a remarkable woman, as remarkable as he was a man? Here she was living amid the refinements of luxury—not an expensive luxury. He had an excellent notion of the monetary value of things, but still luxury. And the whole affair was so stylish— his heart went out to the stylish. The slices of bread and butter were rolled up. There, now, was a pleasing device. It cost nothing to roll up a slice of bread and butter. Her fingers had doubtless done the rolling, and yet it gave quite a different taste to the food. "'What made you give that house to Mrs. Hullins?' she asked him suddenly, with a candour that seemed to demand candour. "'Oh,' he said, "'just a lark. I thought I would. It came to me all in a second, and I did.' She shook her head. "'Strange boy,' she observed. There was a pause. "'It was something Charlie Ferns said, wasn't it?' she inquired. She uttered the name Charlie Ferns, with a certain faint hint of disdain as if indicating to Denry that, of course, she and Denry were quite able to put Ferns into his proper place in the scheme of things. "'Oh,' he said, "'so you know all about it?' "'Well,' said she, "'naturally it was all over the town. Mrs. Ferns's girl, annunziata what a name, eh!—is one of my pupils—the youngest, in fact.' "'Well,' said he, after another pause, "'I wasn't going to have Ferns coming the Duke over me.' She smiled sympathetically. He felt that they understood each other deeply. "'You'll find some cigarettes in that box,' she said, when he had been there thirty minutes, and pointed to the mantelpiece. "'Sure you don't mind?' he murmured. She raised her eyebrows. There was also a silver match-box in the larger box. No detail lacked. It seemed to him that he stood on a mountain— and had only to walk down a winding path in order to enter the promised land. He was decidedly pleased with the worldly way in which he had said, "'Sure you don't mind.' He puffed out smoke delicately, and, the cigarette between his lips, as with his left hand he waved the match into extinction, he demanded, "'You smoke?' "'Yes,' she said, "'but not in public. I know what you men are.' This was in the early, timid days of feminine smoking. "'I assure you,' he protested, and pushed the box towards her, but she would not smoke. "'It isn't that I mind you,' she said. "'Not at all. But I'm not well. I've got a frightful headache.' He put on a concerned expression. "'I thought you looked rather pale,' he said, awkwardly. "'Pale!' she repeated the word. You should have seen me this morning. I have fits of dizziness, you know, too. The doctor says it's nothing but dyspepsia. However, don't let's talk about poor little me and my silly complaints. Perhaps the tea will do me good. He protested again, but his experience of intimate civilization was too brief to allow him to protest with effectiveness. The truth was, he could not say these things naturally. He had to compose them, and then pronounce them and the result failed in the necessary air of spontaneity. He could not help thinking what marvellous self-control women had. Now, when he had a headache, which happily was seldom, he could think of nothing else, and talk of nothing else. The entire universe consisted solely of his headache, and here she was overcome with a headache, and during more than half an hour had not even mentioned it. She began talking gossip about the Fernses and the Sweatnums, and she mentioned rumours concerning Henry Miners, who had scruples against dancing, and Anna Tellwright, the daughter of that rich old skin Ephraim Tellwright. No mistake, she was on the inside of things in Bursley society. It was just as if she had removed the front walls of every house, and examined every room at her leisure with minute particularity. But, of course, a teacher of dancing had opportunities. Denry had to pretend to be nearly as omniscient as she was. Then she broke off without warning, and lay back in her chair. "'I wonder if you would mind going into the barn for me?' she murmured. She generally referred to her academy as The Barn. It had once been a warehouse. He jumped up. "'Certainly,' he said, very eager. "'I think you'll find a small bottle of eau de cologne on the top of the piano,' she said, and shut her eyes.' He hastened away, full of his mission, and feeling himself to be a terrific cavalier and guardian of weak women, he felt keenly that he must be equal to the situation. Yes, the small bottle of Eau de Cologne was on the top of the piano. He seized it, and bore it to her on the wings of chivalry. He had not been aware that Eau de Cologne was a remedy for, or a palliative of, headaches. She opened her eyes, and with a great effort tried to be bright and better, "'but it was a failure. "'She took the stopper out of the bottle "'and sniffed first at the stopper "'and then at the bottle. "'Then she spilled a few drops of the liquid "'on her handkerchief "'and applied the handkerchief to her temples. "'It's easier,' she said. "'Sure?' he asked. "'He did not know what to do with himself, "'whether to sit down and feign that she was well, "'or to remain standing in an attitude "'of respectful and grave anxiety.' "'He thought he ought to depart. "'Yet would it not be ungallant to desert her under the circumstances? "'She was alone. "'She had no servant, only an occasional charwoman. "'She nodded with brave false gaiety, and then she had a relapse. "'Don't you think you'd better lie down?' he suggested, in more masterful accents, "'and added, "'And I'll go. "'You ought to lie down. "'It's the only thing.' "'He was now speaking to her like a wise uncle. "'Oh, no,' she said, without conviction. "'Besides, you can't go till I've paid you.' It was on the tip of his tongue to say, "'Oh, don't bother about that now.' But he restrained himself. There was a notable core of common sense in Denry. He had been puzzling how he might neatly mention the rent while departing in a hurry, so that she might lie down, and now she had solved the difficulty for him. She stretched out her arm, and picked up a bunch of keys from a basket on a little table. "'You might just unlock that desk for me, will you?' she said, and further as she went through the keys one by one to select the right key. "'Each quarter I've put your precious Mr. Herbert Calvert's rent in a drawer in that desk. Here's the key.' She held up the whole ring by the chosen key, and he accepted it. And she lay back once more in her chair exhausted by her exertions you must turn the key sharply in the lock she said weakly as he fumbled at the locked part of the desk so he turned the key sharply you'll see a bag in a little drawer on the right she murmured the key turned round and round it had begun by resisting but now it yielded too easily it doesn't seem to open he said feeling clumsy The key clicked and slid, and the other keys rattled together. "'Oh, yes,' she replied. "'I opened it quite easily this morning. It is a bit catchy.' The key kept going round and round. "'Here, I'll do it,' she said wearily. "'Oh, no,' he urged. But she rose courageously, and tottered to the desk, and took the bunch from him i'm afraid you've broken something in the lock she announced with gentle resignation after she had tried to open the desk and failed have i he mumbled he knew that he was not shining would you mind calling in at almond's she said resuming her chair and tell them to send a man down at once to pick the lock there's nothing else for it or perhaps you'd better say first thing tomorrow morning "'and then, as soon as he's done it, "'I'll call and pay you the money myself. "'And you might tell your precious Mr. Herbert Calvert that next quarter I shall give notice to leave.' "'Don't you trouble to call, please,' said he. "'I can easily pop in here.' "'She sped him away in an enigmatic tone. "'He could not be sure whether he had succeeded or failed, "'in her estimation, as a man of the world "'and a partaker of delicate teas.' "'Don't forget almonds,' she enjoined him as he left the room. He was to let himself out. 3. He was coming home late that night from the sports club, from a delectable evening which had lasted till one o'clock in the morning, when, just as he put the large key into his mother's cottage, he grew aware of peculiar phenomena at the top end of Broom Street, where it runs into St. Luke's Square. And then, in the gaslit gloom of the warm summer night, he perceived a vast and vague rectangular form, in slow movement towards the slope of Broome Street. It was a Pantechnican van. But the extraordinary thing was, not that it should be a Pantechnican van, but it should be moving of its own accord and power, for there were no horses in front of it. And Denry saw that the double shafts had been pushed up perpendicularly after the manner of Carmen when they outspan. The Pantechnican was running away. It had perceived the wrath to come, and was fleeing. Its guardians had evidently left it imperfectly scotched or braked, and it had got loose. It proceeded down the first bit of Broom Street with a dignity worthy of its dimensions, and at the same time with apparently a certain sense of the humour of the situation. Then it seemed to be saying to itself— technicians will be technicians. Then it took on the absurd gravity of a man who is perfectly sure that he is not drunk. Nevertheless, it kept fairly well to the middle of the road, but as though the road were a tightrope. The rumble of it increased as it approached Denry. He withdrew the key from his mother's cottage, and put it in his pocket. He was always at his finest in a crisis.' and the onrush of the Pantechnican constituted a clear crisis. Lower down, the gradient of Broom Street was more dangerous, and it was within the possibilities that people inhabiting the depths of the street might find themselves pitched out of bed by the sharp corner of a Pantechnican that was determined to be a Pantechnican. A Pantechnican whose ardour is fairly aroused may be capable of surpassing deeds. Whole thoroughfares may crumble before it, as the Pantechnican passed Denry, at the rate of about three and a half miles an hour, he leapt, or rather he scrambled, on to it, losing nothing in the process except his straw hat, which remained a witness at his mother's door that her boy had been that way, and departed under unusual circumstances. Denry had the bright idea of dropping the shafts down to act as a brake, but unaccustomed to the manipulation of shafts he was rather slow in accomplishing the deed. And ere the first pair of shafts had fallen, the Pantechnican was doing quite eight miles an hour, and the steepest declivity was yet to come. Further, the dropping of the left-hand shafts jerked the van to the left, and Denry dropped the other pair only just in time to avoid the sudden uprooting of a lamp-post. The four points of the shafts, digging and prodding into the surface of the road— gave the pantechnicon something to think about for a few seconds. But, unfortunately, the precipitousness of the street encouraged its headlong caprices, and a few seconds later all force shafts were broken, and the pantechnicon seemed to scent the open prairie. What it really did scent was the canal. Then Denry discovered the brake, and furiously struggled with the iron handle. He turned it and turned it some forty revolutions. It seemed to have no effect. The miracle was that the Pantechnicon maintained its course in the middle of the street. Presently Denry could vaguely distinguish the wall and double wooden gates of the canal wharf. He could not jump off. The Pantechnicon was now an express, and I doubt whether he would have jumped off, even if jumping off had not been madness. His was the kind of perseverance that, for the fun of it, will perish in an attempt. The final fifty or sixty yards of Broom Street were level and the Pantechnican slightly abated its haste. Denry could now plainly see, in the radiance of the gas-lamp, the gates of the wharf, and on them the painted letters, Shropshire Union Canal Company Limited, General Carriers, no admittance except on business. He was heading straight for those gates, and the Pantechnican evidently had business within. It jolted over the iron guard of the weighing machine and this jolt deflected it, so that instead of aiming at the gates, it aimed for a part of a gate and part of a brick pillar. Denry ground his teeth together and clung to his seat. The gate might have been paper, and the brick pillar a cardboard pillar. The Pantechnican went through them as a sword will go through a ghost, and Denry was still alive. The remainder of the journey was brief and violent, owing partly to a number of bags of cement, and partly to the propinquity of the canal basin. The Pantechnican jumped into the canal, like a mastodon, and drank. Denry, clinging to the woodwork, was submerged for a moment, but by standing on the narrow platform from which sprouted the splintered ends of the shafts, he could get his waist clear of the water. He was not a swimmer. All was still and dark, save for the faint stream of starlight on the broad bosom of the canal basin. The Pantechnican had encountered nobody whatever en route. Of its strange escapade, Denry had been the sole witness. "'Well, I'm dashed,' he murmured aloud. And a voice replied from the belly of the Pantechnican, "'Who is there?' All Denry's body shook. "'It's me,' said he. "'Not Mr. Machin?' said the voice. "'Yes,' said he. "'I jumped on it as it came down the street, and here we are.' "'Oh!' cried the voice. "'I do wish you could get round to me.' "'Ruth Earp's voice.' He saw the truth in a moment of piercing insight. Ruth had been playing with him. She had performed a comedy for him in two acts. She had meant to do what is called in the Five Towns, a moonlight flit. The Pantechnican, doubtless from Birmingham, where her father was, had been brought to her door late in the evening, and was to have been filled and taken away during the night. The horses had been stabled, probably in Ruth's own yard, and while the carmen were reposing, the Pantechnican had got off, Ruth in it. She had no money locked in her unlockable desk. Her reason for not having paid the precious Mr. Herbert Calvert was not the reason which he had advanced. His first staggered thought was she's got a nerve, no mistake. Her duplicity, her wickedness did not shock him. He admired her tremendous and audacious enterprise. It appealed strongly to every cell in his brain. He felt that she and he were kindred spirits. He tried to clamber round the side of the van so as to get to the doors at the back. But a Pantechnican has a wheel-base which forbids leaping from wheel to wheel, especially when the wheels are under water. Hence he was obliged to climb onto the roof, and so slide down on to the top of one of the doors, which was swinging loose. The feat was not simple. At last he felt the floor of the van under half a yard of water. "'Where are you?' "'I'm here,' said Ruth, very plaintively. "'I'm on a table. It was the only thing they'd put into the van before they went off to have their supper or something. Furniture removers are always like that. Haven't you got a match?' "'I've got scores of matches,' said Denry. "'But what good do you suppose they'll be now, all soaked through?' A short silence. He noticed that she had offered no explanation of her conduct towards himself. She seemed to take it for granted that he would understand— "'I'm frightfully bumped, and I believe my nose is bleeding,' said Ruth, still more plaintively. "'It's a good thing there was a lot of straw and sacks here.' Then, after much groping, his hand touched her wet dress. "'You know, you're a very naughty girl,' he said. He heard a sob, a wild sob. The proud independent creature had broken down under the stress of events. He climbed out of the water on to the part of the table which she was not occupying, and the van was as black as Erebus. Gradually out of the welter of sobs came faint articulations, and, little by little, he learnt the entire story of her difficulties, her misfortunes, her struggles, and her defeats. He listened to a frank confession of guilt. But what could she do? She had meant well. But what could she do? She had been driven into a corner and she had her father to think of. Honestly, on the previous day she had intended to pay the rent or part of it, but there had been a disappointment, and she had been so unwell. In short, the van gave a lurch. She clutched at him, and he at her. The van was settling down for a comfortable night in the mud. Queer that it had not occurred to him before— But at the first visit she had postponed paying him on the plea that the bank was closed, while at the second visit she had stated that the actual cash had been slowly accumulating in her desk, and the discrepancy had not struck him. Such is the influence of a tea-gown. However, he forgave her, in consideration of her immense audacity. "'What can we do?' she almost whispered. Her confidence in him affected him. "'Wait till it gets light,' said he. So they waited, amid the waste of waters. In a hot July it is not unpleasant to dangle one's feet in the water during the sultry dark hours,' she told him more and more. When the inspiring grey preliminaries of the dawn began, Denry saw that at the back of the Pantechnicum the waste of waters extended for at most a yard, and that it was easy, by climbing on to the roof, to jump therefrom to the wharf. He did so, and then fixed a plank so that Ruth could get ashore. Relieved of their weight, the table floated out after them. Denry seized it, and set about smashing it to pieces with his feet. "'What are you doing?' she asked faintly. She was too enfeebled to protest more vigorously. "'Leave it to me,' said Denry. "'This table is the only thing that can give your show away. "'We can't carry it back. "'We might meet someone.' "'He tied the fragments of the table together with rope that was afloat in the van, "'and attached the heavy iron bar, whose function was to keep the doors closed. "'Then he sank the faggot of wood and iron in a distant corner of the basin. "'There,' he said, "'now you understand. "'Nothing's happened except that a furniture van's run off.' and fallen into the canal owing to the men's carelessness. We can settle the rest later. I mean, about the rent and so on. They looked at each other. Her skirts were nearly dry. Her nose showed no trace of bleeding, but there was a bluish lump over her left eye. Save that he was hatless, and that his trousers clung, he was not utterly unpresentable. They were alone in the silent dawn, You'd better go home by Acre Lane, not up Broom Street, he said. I'll come in during the morning. It was a parting in which more was felt than said. They went one after the other through the devastated gateway, baptizing the path as they walked. The town-hall clock struck three as Denry crept up his mother's stairs. He had seen not a soul. Four. The exact truth in its details was never known to more than two inhabitants of Bursley. The one thing clear certainly appeared to be that Denry, in endeavouring to prevent a runaway Pantechnican from destroying the town, had travelled with it into the canal. The romantic trip was accepted as perfectly characteristic of Denry. Around this island of fact washed a fabulous sea of uninformed gossip, in which assertion conflicted with assertion and the names of Denry and Ruth were continually bumping against each other. Mr. Herbert Calvert glanced queerly and perhaps sardonically at Denry, when Denry called and handed over ten pounds, less commission, which he said Miss Earp had paid on account. "'Look here,' said the little Calvert, his mean little eyes gleaming, "'you must get in the balance at once.' "'That's all right,' said Denry. "'I shall.' was she trying to hook it on the q t calvert demanded oh no said denry that was a very funny misunderstanding the only explanation i can think of is that the van must have come to the wrong house are you engaged to her calvert asked with amazing effrontery denry paused yes he said are you mr calvert wondered what he meant He admitted to himself that the courtship had begun in a manner surpassingly strange. End of chapter 3 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Andy Minter. The Card, A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns, by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Four, Wrecking of a Life. One. In the five towns, and perhaps elsewhere, there exists a custom in virtue of which a couple who have become engaged in the early summer find themselves, by a most curious coincidence, at the same seaside resort, and often in the same street thereof, during August. Thus it happened to Denry and to Ruth Earp. There had been difficulties. There always are. A businessman, who lives by collecting weekly rents, obviously cannot go away for an indefinite period and a young woman who lives alone in the world, is bound to respect public opinion. However, Ruth arranged that her girlish friend, Nellie Cotterill, who had generous parents, should accompany her, and the North Staffordshire Railway's philanthropic scheme of issuing four shilling tourist return tickets to the seaside, enabled Denry to persuade himself that he was not absolutely mad in contemplating a fortnight on the shores of England. Ruth chose Clandidno, Clandidno being more stylish than either Harill or Blackpool, and not dearer. Ruth and Nellie had a double room in a boarding-house, number 26, St. Asaph's Road, off the Marine Parade, and Denry had a small single room in another boarding-house, number 28, St. Asaph's Road. The ideal could scarcely have been approached more nearly. Denry had never seen the sea before as, in his gayest clothes, he strolled along the esplanade, or on the pier, between those two girls in their gayest clothes, and mingled with the immense crowd of pleasure-seekers and money-spenders, he was undoubtedly much impressed by the beauty and grandeur of the sea. But what impressed him far more than the beauty and the grandeur of the sea, was the field for profitable commercial enterprise, which a place like Clanditnoe presented. He had not only his first vision of the sea— but his first genuine vision of the possibilities of amassing wealth by honest ingenuity. On the morning after his arrival he went out for a walk, and lost himself near the great Orme, and had to return hurriedly along the whole length of the parade about nine o'clock, and through every ground-floor window, in every house, he saw a long table full of people eating and drinking the same kinds of food. Inlanded, no. Fifty thousand souls desired always to perform the same act at the same time. They wanted to be distracted, and they would do anything for the sake of distraction, and would pay for the privilege, and they would all pay at once. This great thought was more majestic to him than the sea, or the great orm, or the little orm. It stuck in his head, because he had suddenly grown into a very serious person. He had now something to live for something on which to lavish his energy. He was happy in being affianced, and more proud than happy, and more startled than proud. The manner and method of his courtship had sharply differed from his previous conception of what such an affair would be. He had not passed through the sensations which he would have expected to pass through. And then this question was continually presenting itself. What could she see in him? She must have got a notion that he was far more wonderful than he really was. Could it be true that she, his superior in experience and in splendour of person, had kissed him? Him? He felt that it would be his duty to live up to this exaggerated notion which she had of him. But how? 2. They had not yet discussed finance at all, though Denry would have liked to discuss it. Evidently she regarded him as a man of means. This became clear during the progress of the journey to Slandidno. Denry was flattered, but the next day he had slight misgivings, and on the following day he was alarmed, and on the day after that his state resembled terror. It is truer to say that she regarded him less as a man of means than as a magic and inexhaustible siphon of money. He simply could not stir out of the house without spending money, and often, in ways quite unforeseen, peer minstrels, punch and Judy, bathing, buns, ices, canes, fruit, chairs, rowboats, concerts, toffee, photographs, charbanks, any of these expenditures was likely to happen whenever they went forth for a simple stroll. One might think that strolls were gratis, that the air was free, error if he had had the courage, he would have left his purse in the house, as Ruth invariably did, but men are moral cowards. He had calculated thus. Return fare, four shillings a week. Agreed terms at boarding-house, twenty-five shillings a week. Total expenses per week, twenty-nine shillings, say thirty. On the first day he spent fourteen shillings on nothing whatever, which was at the rate of five pounds a week of supplementary estimates. On the second day he spent nineteen shillings on nothing whatever, and Ruth insisted on his having tea with herself and Nellie at their boarding-house, for which, of course, he had to pay, while his own tea was wasting next door. So the figures ran on, jumping up each day. Mercifully, when Sunday dawns, the open wound in his pocket was temporarily staunched. Ruth wished him to come in for tea again. He refused. At any rate, he did not come, and the exquisite placidity of the stream of their love was slightly disturbed. Nobody could have guessed that she was in monetary difficulties on her own account. Denry, as a chivalrous lover, had assisted her out of the fearful quagmire of her rent, but she owed much beyond rent. Yet, when some of her quarterly fees had come in, her thoughts had instantly run to Clandednoe, Joy, and frocks. She did not know what money was, and she never would. This was perhaps part of her superior splendour. The gentle, timid, silent Nellie occasionally let Denry see that she, too, was scandalised by her bosom friend's recklessness. Often Nellie would modestly beg for permission to pay her share of the cost of an amusement, and it seemed just to Denry that she should pay her share, and he violently wished to accept her money, but he could not. He would even get quite curt with her when she insisted— from this it will be seen how absurdly and irrationally different he was from the rest of us. Nelly was continually with them, except just before they separated for the night, so that Denry paid consistently for three. But he liked Nellie Cotterill. She blushed so easily, and she so obviously worshipped Ruth and admired himself, and there was a marked vein of common sense in her ingenuous composition. On the Monday morning— he was up early and off to Bursley to collect rents and manage estates. He had spent nearly five pounds beyond his expectation. Indeed, if by chance he had not gone to Llandidno with a portion of the previous week's rent in his pockets, he would have been in what the five towns call a fix. While in Bursley he thought a good deal—Bursley in August encourages nothing but thought— his mother was working as usual— His recitals to her of the existence led by betrothed lovers at Llandedno were vague. On the Tuesday evening he returned to Llandudno, and, despite the general trend of his thoughts, it once more occurred that his pockets were loaded with a portion of the week's rents. He did not know precisely what was going to happen, but he knew that something was going to happen, for the sufficient reason that his career could not continue unless something did happen. Without either a quarrel, an understanding, or a miracle, three months of affianced bliss with Ruth Earp would exhaust his resources and ruin his reputation as one who was ever equal to a crisis. Three, What immediately happened was a storm at sea. He heard it mentioned at Rill, and he saw in the deep night the foam of breakers at Prestatin. And when the train reached Llandudno. Those two girls in Ulsters and Caps greeted him with wondrous tales of the storm at sea, and of wrecks, and of lifeboats, And they were so jolly and so welcoming, so plainly glad to see their cavalier again, that Denry instantly discovered himself to be in the highest spirits. He put away the dark and brooding thoughts which had disfigured his journey, and became the gay Denry of his own dreams. The very wind intoxicated him. There was no rain." It was half past nine, and half Slandedno was afoot on the parade and discussing the storm, a storm unparalleled, it seemed, in the month of August. At any rate, people who had visited Slandedno yearly for twenty-five years declare that never had they witnessed such a storm. The new lifeboat had gone forth amid cheers about six o'clock to a schooner in distress near Rose, and at eight o'clock a second lifeboat, an old one which the new one had replaced and which had been bought for a floating warehouse by an aged fisherman, had departed to the rescue of a Norwegian bark, the Shalmar, round the bend of the Little Orme. "'Let's go on the pier,' said Denry. "'It'll be splendid.' He was not an hour in the town, and yet he was already hanging expense. "'They've closed the pier,' the girls told him. But when, in the course of their meanderings among the excited crowd under the gas-lamps, they arrived at the pier-gates, Denry perceived figures on the pier— "'They're sailors and things, and the mare,' the girls explained. Pooh said Denry, fired. He approached the turnstile, and handed a card to the official. It was the card of an advertisement agent of the Staffordshire Signal, who had called at Broom Street in Denry's absence, about the renewal of Denry's advertisement. "'Press,' said Denry to the guardian at the turnstile, and went through with the ease of a bird on the wing. "'Come along,' he cried to the girls. The guardian seemed to hesitate. "'These ladies are with me,' he said. The guardian yielded. It was a triumph for Denry. He could read his triumph in the eyes of his companions. When she looked at him like that, Ruth was assuredly marvellous among women, and any ideas derogatory to her marvellousness, which he might have had at Bursley and in the train, were false ideas. At the head of the pier beyond the pavilion, there were gathered together some fifty people, and the tale ran that the second lifeboat had successfully accomplished its mission, and was approaching the pier. "'I shall write an account of this for the signal,' said Denry, whose thoughts were excusably on the press. "'Oh, do!' exclaimed Nellie. "'They have the signal at all the newspaper-shops here,' said Ruth. Then they seemed to be merged in the storm the pier shook and trembled under the shock of the waves, and occasionally, though the tide was very low, a sprinkle of water flew up and caught their faces. The eyes could see nothing save the passing glitter of the foam on the crest of a breaker. It was the most thrilling situation that any of them had ever been in. And at last came word from the mouths of men who could apparently see as well in the dark as in daylight that the second lifeboat was close to the pier and then everybody momentarily saw it-a ghostly thing that heaved up pale out of the murk for an instant and was lost again and the little crowd cheered the next moment a bengal light illuminated the pier and the lifeboat was silhouetted with strange effectiveness against the storm and someone flung a rope and then another rope arrived out of the sea and fell on denry's shoulder haul on there yelled a hoarse voice The Bengal light expired. Denry hauled with a will. The occasion was unique, and those few seconds were worth to him the whole of Denry's previous life. Yes, not excluding the seconds in which he had kissed Ruth, and the minutes in which he had danced with the Countess of Shell. Then two men with beards took the rope from his hands. The air was now alive with shoutings. Finally there was a rush of men down the iron stairway to the lower part of the pier ten feet nearer the water. "'You stay here, you two. Denry ordered. "'But, Denry, stay here, I tell you.' All the mail in him was aroused. He was off, after the rush of men. "'Half a jiffy,' he said, coming back. "'Just take charge of this, will you?' And he poured into their hands about twelve shillings' worth of copper, small change of rents from his hip pocket. "'If anything happened, that might sink me,' he said, and vanished." It was very characteristic of him, that effusion of calm sagacity in a supreme emergency. 4. Beyond getting his feet wet, Denry accomplished but little in the dark basement of the pier. In spite of his success in hauling in the thrown rope, he seemed to be classed at once down there by the experts assembled as an eager and useless person who had no right to the space which he occupied. However, he witnessed the heaving arrival of the lifeboat and the disembarking of the rescued crew of the Norwegian bark, and he was more than ever decided to compose a descriptive article for the Staffordshire signal. The rescued and rescuing crews disappeared in single file to the upper floor of the pier, with the exception of the coxswain, a man with a spreading red beard, who stayed behind to inspect the lifeboat, of which indeed he was the absolute owner. As a journalist, Denry did the correct thing, and engaged him in conversation. Meanwhile, cheering could be heard above. The coxswain, who stated that his name was Craigine, and that he was a manxman, seemed to regret the entire expedition. He seemed to be unaware that it was his duty now to play the part of the modest hero to Denry's interviewing. At every loose end of the chat he would say gloomily, "'And look at her now, I'm telling ye!' meaning the battered craft which rose and fell on the black waves denry ran upstairs again in search of more amenable material some twenty men in various sou'westers and other headgear were eating thick slices of bread and butter and drinking hot coffee which with foresight had been prepared for them in the pier buffet a few had preferred whisky the whole crowd was now under the lee of the pavilion and it constituted a spectacle which Denry said to himself he should refer to in his article as Rembrandtesque. For a few moments he could not describe Ruth and Nelly in the gloom. Then he saw the indubitable form of his betrothed at a penny in the slot-machine, and the indubitable form of Nelly at another penny in the slot-machine. And then he could hear the click-click-click of the machines working rapidly, and his thoughts took a new direction." Presently Ruth ran with blithe gracefulness from her machine, and commenced a generous distribution of packets to the members of the crew. There was neither calculation nor exact justice in her generosity. She dropped packets on to heroic knees with a splendid gesture of largesse. Some packets even fell on the floor, but she did not mind. Denry could hear her saying, "'You must eat it. Chocolate is so sustaining there's nothing like it.' She ran back to the machine's and snatched more packets from Nellie, who under her orders had been industrious, and then began a second distribution. A calm and disinterested observer would probably have been touched by this spectacle of impulsive womanly charity. He might even have decided that it was one of the most beautifully human things that he had ever seen. And the fact that the hardy heroes and Norsemen appeared scarcely to know what to do with the silver-wrapped bonbons would not have impaired his admiration for these two girlish figures of benevolence. Denry, too, was touched by the spectacle, but in another way. It was the rents of his clients that were being thus dissipated in the very luxury of needless benevolence. He muttered, Well, that's a bit thick, that is, but of course he could do nothing. As the process continued, the clicking of the machine exacerbated his ears. Idiotic! he muttered. The final annoyance to him was that everybody except himself seemed to consider that Ruth was displaying singular ingenuity, originality, enterprise, and goodness of heart. In that moment he saw clearly for the first time that the marriage between himself and Ruth had not been arranged in heaven. He admitted privately that the saving of a young woman from violent death in a Pantechnicon need not inevitably involve espousing her. She was without doubt a marvellous creature." But it was as wise to dream of keeping a carriage and pair as to dream of keeping Ruth. He grew suddenly cynical. His age leapt to fifty or so, and the curve of his lips changed. Ruth, spying around, saw him, and ran to him with a glad cry. "'Here,' she said, "'take these. They're no good.' She held out her hands. "'What are they?' he asked. "'They're the hapenies.' "'So sorry,' he said with an accent whose significance escaped her, and took the useless coins. "'We've exhausted all the chocolate,' said she. "'But there's butterscotch left. It's nearly as good, and gold-tipped cigarettes. I dare say some of them would enjoy a smoke. Have you got any more pennies?' "'No,' he replied. "'But I've got ten or a dozen half-crowns. They'll work the machine just as well, won't they?' This time she did notice a certain unusualness in the flavour of his accent and she hesitated. "'Don't be silly,' she said. "'I'll try not to be,' said Denry. So far as he could remember, he had never used such a tone before. Ruth swerved away to rejoin Nellie. Denry surreptitiously counted the halfpennies. There were eighteen. She had fed those machines then with over a hundred and thirty pence. He murmured, "'Thick, thick!' "'Considering that he had returned to Slandidna, "'in the full intention of putting his foot down, "'of clearly conveying to Ruth "'that his conception of finance differed from hers, "'the second sojourn had commenced badly. "'Still he had promised to marry her, "'and he must marry her. "'Better a lifetime of misery and insolvency "'than a failure to behave as a gentleman should. "'Of course, if she chose to break it off,' but he must be minutely careful to do nothing which might lead to a breach. Such was Denry's code. The walk home at midnight, amid the reverberations of the falling tempest, was marked by a slight pettishness on the part of Ruth, and by Denry's polite taciturnity. V. Yet the next morning, as the three companions sat together under the striped awning of the buffet on the pier, Nobody could have divined by looking at them that one of them, at any rate, was the most uncomfortable young man in all Flandidno. The sun was hotly shining on their bright attire, and on the still turbulent waves. Ruth, thirsty after a breakfast of herrings and bacon, was sucking iced lemonade up a straw. Nellie was eating chocolate, undistributed remains of the night's benevolence. Denry was yawning not in the least because the proceedings failed to excite his keen interest, but because he had been a journalist till three a.m., and had risen at six in order to dispatch a communication to the editor of the Staffordshire Signal by train. The girls were very playful. Nelly dropped a piece of chocolate into Ruth's glass, and Ruth fished it out and bit at it. "'What a jolly taste!' she exclaimed. And then Nelly bit at it. "'Oh, it's just lovely,' said Nellie, softly. "'Here, dear,' said Ruth, "'try it.' And Denry had to try it, and to pronounce it a delicious novelty, which indeed it was, and generally to brighten himself up. And all the time he was murmuring in his heart, "'This can't go on.' Nevertheless, he was obliged to admit that it was he who had invited Ruth to pass the rest of her earthly life with him, and not vice versa.' "'Well, shall we go on somewhere else?' Ruth suggested. And he paid yet again. He paid and smiled. He who had meant to be the masterful male. He who deemed himself always equal to a crisis. But in this crisis he was helpless. They set off down the pier, brilliant in the brilliant crowd. Everybody was talking of wrecks and lifeboats, the new lifeboat had done nothing, having been forestalled by the Prestatin boat, but Landidno was apparently very proud of its brave old, worn out lifeboat, which had brought ashore the entire crew of the chalma without casualty in a terrific hurricane. Run along, child, said Ruth to Nelly, while Uncle and Auntie talked to each other for a minute. Nelly stared, blushed, and walked forward in confusion. She was startled, and Denry was equally startled. Never before had Ruth so brazenly hinted that lovers must be left alone at intervals. In justice to her, it must be said that she was a mirror for all the proprieties. Denry had even reproached her in his heart for not sufficiently showing her desire for his exclusive society. He wondered now what was to be the next revelation of her surprising character. "'I had our bill this morning,' said Ruth. She leaned gracefully on the handle of her sunshade, and they both stared at the sea. She was very elegant, with an aristocratic air. The bill, as she mentioned it, seemed a very negligible trifle. Nevertheless, Denry's heart quaked. "'Oh,' he said, "'did you pay it?' "'Yes,' said she. "'The landlady wanted the money, she told me.' "'so Nellie gave me her share, and I paid it at once.' "'Oh!' said Denry. There was a silence. Denry felt as though he were defending a castle, or as though he were in a dark room, and somebody was calling him, calling him, and he was pretending not to be there, and holding his breath. "'But I've hardly any money left,' said Ruth. "'The fact is, Nellie and I spent a lot yesterday and the day before.' "'You've no idea how money goes.' "'Haven't I?' said Denry. "'But not to her. Only to his own heart. To her he said nothing.' "'I suppose we shall have to go back home,' she ventured lightly. But one can't run into debt here. They'd claim your luggage.' "'What a pity,' said Denry sadly. "'Just those few words, and the interesting part of the interview was over.' all that followed counted not in the least she had meant to induce him to offer to defray the whole of her expenses in llandudno no doubt in the form of a loan and she had failed she had intended him to repair the disaster caused by her chronic extravagance and he had only said what a pity yes it is she agreed bravely and with a finer disdain than ever of petty financial troubles "'Still, it can't be helped.' "'No, I suppose not,' said Denry. There was undoubtedly something fine about Ruth. In that moment she had it in her to kill Denry with a bodkin, but she merely smiled. The situation was terribly strained, past all Denry's previous conceptions of a strained situation, but she deviated with superlative sang-froid into frothy small talk. "'A proud and unconquerable woman. "'After all, what were men for, if not to pay?' "'I think I shall go home to-night,' she said, after the excursion into Prattle. "'I'm sorry,' said Denry. "'He was not coming out of his castle.' "'At that moment a hand touched his shoulder. "'It was the hand of Craigine, the owner of the old lifeboat. "'Mister,' said Craigine, too absorbed in his own welfare to notice Ruth. "'It's now or never. Five-and-twenty'll buy the Fleetwing if ten's paid down this morning.' "'And Denry,' replied boldly, "'you shall have it in an hour. Where shall you be?' "'I'll be at John's cabin under the pier,' said Craigine. "'Where ye found me this morning?' "'Right,' said Denry. If Ruth had not been caracoling on her absurdly high horse, she would have had the truth out of Denry in a moment concerning these early-morning interviews and mysterious transactions in shipping. But from that height she could not deign to be curious, and so she said naught. Denry had passed the whole morning since breakfast, and had uttered no word of pre-prandial encounters with mariners, though he had talked a lot about his article for The Signal, and of how he had risen betimes in order to dispatch it by the first train. And as Ruth showed no curiosity, Denry behaved on the assumption that she felt none, and the situation grew even more strained. As they walked down the pier towards the beach at the dinner hour, Ruth bowed to a dandiacal man who obsequiously saluted her. "'Who's that?' asked Denry instinctively. "'It's a gentleman I was once engaged to,' answered Ruth, with cold, brief politeness. Denry did not like this. The situation almost creaked under the complicated stresses to which it was subject. The wonder was that it did not fly to pieces long before evening. Six, The pride of the principal actors being now engaged, each person was compelled to carry out the intentions which he had expressed, either in words or tacitly. Denry's silence had announced more efficiently than any words that he would under no inducement emerge from his castle. Ruth had stated plainly that there was nothing for it but to go home at once that very night. Hence she arranged to go home, and hence Denry refrained from interfering with her arrangements. Ruth was lugubrious under a mask of gaiety. Nellie was lugubrious under no mask whatever. Nellie was merely the puppet of these betrothed players, her elders. She admired Ruth, and she admired Denry, and between them they were spoiling the little thing's holiday for their own adult purposes. Nellie knew that dreadful occurrences were in the air, occurrences compared to which the storm at sea was a storm in a teacup. She knew partly because Ruth had been so queenly polite, and partly because they had come separately to St. Asaph's Road, and had not spent the entire afternoon together. So quickly do great events loom up and happen, that at six o'clock they had had tea, and were on their way afoot to the station. The odd man of number 26, St. Asaph's Road, had preceded them with the luggage. All the rest of Llandudno was joyously strolling home to its half-past six high tea, grand people to whom weekly bills were as dust, and who were in a position to stop in Flandidno for ever and ever, if they chose, and Ruth and Nellie were conscious of the shame which always affects those whom necessity forces to the railway station of a pleasure resort in the middle of the season. They saw omnibuses loaded with luggage, and jolly souls were actually coming, whose holiday had not yet properly commenced, and this spectacle added to their humiliation and their disgust. They genuinely felt that they belonged to the lower orders. Ruth, for the sake of effect, joked on the most solemn subjects— She even referred, with giggling laughter, to the fact that she had borrowed from Nellie in order to discharge her liabilities for the final twenty-four hours at the boarding-house. The giggling laughter being contagious, as they were walking side by side together, they all laughed, and each one secretly thought how ridiculous was such behaviour, and how it failed to reach the standard of true worldliness.' Then, nearer the station, some sprightly caprice prompted Denry to raise his hat to two young women, who were crossing the road in front of them. Neither of the two young women responded to the homage. "'Who are they?' asked Ruth, and the words were out of her mouth before she could remind herself that curiosity was beneath her. "'It's a young lady I was once engaged to,' said Denry. "'Which one?' asked the ninny, Nellie, astounded. "'I forget,' said Denry. "'He considered this to be one of his greatest retorts, not to Nellie, but to Ruth. "'Nellie, naturally, did not appreciate its loveliness. "'But Ruth did. "'There was no facet of that retort that escaped Ruth's critical notice. "'At length they arrived at the station, quite a quarter of an hour before the train was due, "'and half an hour before it came in. "'Denry tipped the odd man for the transport of the luggage.' "'Sure it's all there?' he asked the girls, embracing both of them in his gaze. "'Yes,' said Ruth. "'But where's yours?' "'Oh,' he said, "'I'm not going to-night. I've got some business to attend to here. I thought you understood. I expect you'll be all right, you two together.' After a moment Ruth said brightly, "'Oh, yes, I was quite forgetting about your business,' which was completely untrue, since she knew nothing of his business." and he had assuredly not informed her that he would not return with them. But Ruth was being very brave, haughty, and queen-like, and for this the precise truth must sometimes be abandoned. The most precious thing in the world to Ruth was her dignity, and who can blame her? She meant to keep it no matter what costs. In a few minutes the bookstall on the platform attracted them as inevitably as a prone horse attracts a crowd. Other people were near the bookstall, and as these people were obviously leaving Clandidno, Ruth and Nellie felt a certain solace. The social outlook seemed brighter for them. Denry bought one or two penny-papers, and then the newsboy began to paste up the contents poster of the Staffordshire Signal, which had just arrived, and on this poster, very prominent, were the words, "'The Great Storm in North Wales, Special Descriptive Report,' Denry snatched up one of the green papers and opened it, and on the first column of the news-page saw his wondrous description, including the word Rembrandtesque, "'Graphic account by a Bursley gentleman of the scene at Llandinno,' said the subtitle, and the article was introduced by the phrase, "'We are indebted to Mr. E. H. Machin, a prominent figure in Bursley,' etc. It was like a miracle. Do what he would, Denry could not stop his face from glowing. With false calm he gave the paper to Ruth. Her calmness in receiving it upset him. "'We'll read it in the train,' she said primly, and started to talk about something else, and she became most agreeable and companionable. Mixed up with papers and sixpenny novels on the bookstall were a number of souvenirs of now paper knives pens paperweights watch cases pen cases all in light wood or glass and ornamented with coloured views of flandersno and also the word flandersno in large german capitals so that mistakes might not arise ruth remembered that she had even intended to buy a crystal paperweight with a view of the great orm at the bottom the bookstall clerk had several crystal paperweights with views of the pier, the Hotel Majestic, the Esplanade, the Happy Valley, but none with a view of the Great Orme. He had also paper-knives and watch-cases with a view of the Great Orme. But Ruth wanted a combination of paperweight and Great Orme, and nothing else would satisfy her. She was like that. The clerk admitted that such a combination existed, but he was sold out of it. "'Couldn't you get one and send it to me?' said Ruth, and Denry saw anew that she was incurable. "'Oh, yes, miss,' said the clerk, "'certainly, miss, to-morrow, at latest.' And he pulled out a book. "'What name?' Ruth looked at Denry, as women do look on such occasions. "'Rothschild,' said Denry. It may seem perhaps strange that a single word ended their engagement. But it did. She could not tolerate a rebuke. She walked away, flushing. The bookstall clerk received no order. Several persons in the vicinity dimly perceived that a domestic scene had occurred in a flash under their noses on a platform of a railway station. Nellie was speedily aware that something very serious had happened— for the train took them off without Ruth speaking a syllable to Denry, though Denry raised his hat and was almost effusive. The next afternoon Denry received by post a ring in a box. "'I will not submit to insult,' ran the brief letter. "'I only said Rothschild,' Denry murmured to himself. "'Can't a fellow say Rothschild?' But secretly he was proud of himself.